I don't need to tell you that in the modern world, most of your relationships are transactional relationships. It's kind of what it means to be a consumer in a consumer society. We leave a a good review about the restaurant we just ate at on Yelp. PK especially does that. Uh, Because the service and the food was good. We, We got something, and so we give something. We, we recommend our auto mechanic to a friend for the same reason. He's, he's done good work in the past. Favors in our consumer society are not gifts. They are earned. But not every relationship is transactional, even though most of them are. Not everyone is. The defendant stands to honor the judge when she walks into the courtroom, not because he's going to get the verdict he wants, but simply because of who she is. She's the judge. She's worthy of honor and standing in her presence. It's it's the same with children, right? Children obey their parents despite last night's asparagus at dinner, not because of it. Right? Parents are worthy of honor. There are some relationships in which identity, not services, not benefits gained, governs the relationship. So, what kind of relationship does God stand in with you? I think for most people these days, the relationship with God is most clearly transactional. How's he doing managing my life? I got that promotion, so he loves me. I got that cancer diagnosis, and that calls everything about him into question. It seems that these days, faith in God is is more like a Yelp review. It can always be revised if service improves, but it is wholly contingent on the services rendered. But but is that that right? Is that the way it should be? Is God just the, the general manager of this cosmic resort we call home? We've begun a series in the book of Daniel called, Who's in Charge Around Here? Daniel was written in the early 6th century BC to the Jewish exiles in Babylon. And let me just be the first to say, they had every reason to complain about management. Life was not going the way they had hoped. But if God exists... Doesn't he deserve our worship simply because of who he is? And so so my question for you this morning is, what what would it mean for God's identity, who, who he actually is, not his gifts and his services, not what he's done for you lately, what would it mean for his identity to define his relationship with you and you with him? Turn with me, if you would, to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. If you're using one of the Bibles, we've provided those black Bibles in the pews and the chairs around you. This is found on page 784. 
784, Daniel chapter 3. To, to set the scene, I want to read just the couple of verses right before where we ended last week at the end of chapter 2. So I'm going to read uh, beginning in verse 48 of the previous chapter. If you're not accustomed to using a Bible, the big number is the chapter number. The small numbers are the verse numbers. So I'm going to start reading at Daniel chapter 2, verse 48. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many generous gifts. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and chief governor over all the wise men of Babylon. At Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to manage the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. All right, that's where we ended last week. Daniel has been promoted to something kind of like prime minister of, of Babylon. He's there at the court. And he's, he's asked for his three friends to be promoted as well, and, and that's happened. His, his free, three friends have been promoted his, at his request. And, and what we're going to see now is that the, the focus shifts, as the chapter unfolds, the focus shifts from Daniel to those three friends. And the cost of honoring God rather than the king. Nebuchadnezzar is going to offer them a transaction. It's a fairly compelling transaction, as we'll see. But God is going to do something entirely different. Here's the argument that, that I think this chapter is pressing upon us. We'll put it on the screen. God rescues his people to vindicate their faith, not reward it. God rescues his people to vindicate their faith in him, not reward it. We're going we're gonna to consider this idea using four R's. I don't do a lot of transliteration, but it just kind of came to me this week, so maybe this will help you. We're going to look at a ridiculous pride, a resolute faith, a rescuing God and a repentant confession. As we do, consider what it would mean for your faith to be compelled by God's character rather than contingent on His service. So first, a ridiculous faith. Look at Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to assemble the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to attend the dedication of the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces assembled for the dedication of the statue the king had set up. Then they stood before the statue Nebuchadnezzar had set up. A herald loudly proclaimed, People of every nation and language, you are commanded. When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music, you are to fall face down and worship the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, 
When all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and every kind of music, people of every nation and language fell down and worshipped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. We'll stop there. We're not told how much time has elapsed, but given the kind of obvious connection between the gold statue that Nebuchadnezzar has set up and that statue in his dream from chapter 2 that had a head of gold that represented him, it can't have been too long. You could say, I think, I think this is what the narrator wants us to say, that dream had gone to Nebuchadnezzar's head. This is a massive display of Nebuchadnezzar's pride. It appears to be a representation of him, though an odd one. And we're meant to think, this is ridiculous. Given the dimensions, 90 feet high, but only 9 feet wide, the statue is more like an obelisk thrusting up from the ground. Nine times in our chapter, we're told that he set up this statue. The author, I think, is very clearly conveying that Nebuchadnezzar had a tumescent ego. He was possessed of a priapic personality. I would like to use the common word to describe this, but I was told I cannot. You get the idea. The satire doesn't stop there, right? The, 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 the list of functionaries repeated twice is, is mocking in its tone. So is the list of musical instruments. You can just see all of these functionaries kind of scurrying out when the band strikes up, like so many toy soldiers bowing down to Nebuchadnezzar's phallic symbol. We're meant to think that this is ridiculous. And yet, as ridiculous as the display is, the decree is for real. The scope is universal. We're told, we're told people of every nation and language, so that would include the Judean exiles. And the consequences are severe. If you don't worship and honor this image of Nebuchadnezzar, you'll be thrown into a blazing furnace. Now, if you've only read this story in isolation, uh, which is the way oftentimes we read the stories in Daniel. We, we read them in isolation. We, you, you, you miss the context, right? We're, 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 we're meant to read chapter 3 after just having read chapter 2. And so as readers, we're meant to say to ourselves, what is up with this guy? What, what, what is he thinking? Is he for real? Didn't he just get blown away by Daniel's revelation and interpretation of his dream? Didn't Nebuchadnezzar just confess that the Lord is God of gods and Lord of kings in chapter 2, verse 47? Well, yes, of course he did. But this is part of the point. Whoever said pride was rational? Whoever said sin makes sense? It doesn't. And the juxtaposition of these two chapters just presses that point home. Uh, the, the, the proof, the proof is, is here. Nebuchadnezzar was told in his dream in chapter 2 that, that the God of the heavens has given you sovereignty, power, strength, and glory. Back there in chapter 2, verse 37. Now, now when you hear that God has given you all this, what, what would your 
response, what, what should it have been? Well, it, it should have been gratitude, right? I mean, when, when you're given gifts on your birthday or at Christmas, do you say, well, of course? I'm glad you can finally see that I'm worthy of those gifts. No, no, you say, you say thank you. <laughs> you say thank you. Gratitude, of course, is, is the natural response. But Nebuchadnezzar's sinful pride has had time to work. Rather than humble himself before the Lord, rather than respond in gratitude, He's let that dream go to his head. He's become presumptuous and proud, and he's decided to focus on the gift, his sovereignty, king of the largest empire in the world, rather than the giver, who is the Lord. We know, Nebuchadnezzar knows, God set him up as king. But he's now decided to declare to the whole world that he set himself up as king. And friends, we're no different. We may not be as outlandish as Nebuchadnezzar, but don't we regularly take the good gifts that God has given us, our bodies, our sexuality, our our relationships, our minds, our, our talents, our professions, our possessions, our our very lives. We take everything that He's given us, and we take pride in them. We begin to put our identity in them, and we begin to turn them into objects of worship. Pride turns gifts into idols. It's what it always does. And yet, when you stop and think about it, how ridiculous, how how irrational to turn a gift into something that you're going to be proud of. In fact, something that you're going to set up as an idol and worship. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, what do you have that you didn't receive? If, in fact, you did receive it, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? Friends, this is the very nature of sin and what it means to be a sinner. Sin is not just breaking a rule. It's not just breaking a law. Sin is setting ourselves up in the place of God. And that's the way it's always been from the very beginning. In Genesis 3, we're told that Adam and Eve wanted to be like God. They wanted to set themselves up beside him as his equal. And so they rejected his rule over their lives. In Psalm 2, we're told that the the kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and his anointed. And indeed, this is what all of us have done in our sin and in our rebellion. But but here's the thing, just as the narrator laughs and wants us to laugh at Nebuchadnezzar, and so the Lord laughs at our pride. I I mentioned Psalm 2. Let me just read from Psalm 2, beginning in verse 4. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. 
I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Friends, Jesus Christ is that son of Psalm chapter 2, the king that God has set up. And he is the only one who is worthy of our worship. His rule was established when he was lifted up on the cross. That's what he himself said in John chapter 3, verse 14. And he was appointed in power when he was raised from the dead, according to Paul in Romans chapter 1, verse 4. He has ascended to heaven. He sits on the throne of heaven. And he has been given a name that is above all names, so that on the last day, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Our pride is ridiculous. And the first step toward kind of right-sizing our relationship with God is to recognize that. Well, in contrast to our ridiculous pride, I want you to consider, second, a resolute faith. We're going to pick up the story in verse 8. Some Chaldeans took this occasion to come forward and maliciously accuse the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. You, as king, have issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music must fall down and worship the gold statue. Whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. There are some Jews whom you have appointed to manage the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men have ignored you, the king. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you've set up. Then in a furious rage, Nebuchadnezzar gave orders to bring in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar asked them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the gold statue I have set up? Now, if you're ready... When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music, fall down and worship the statue I made. But if you don't worship it, you will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God who can rescue you from my power? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. If the God we serve exists then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But even if he does not rescue us, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you set up. Well, the tension in the story begins to rise at this point. We've got these jealous officials, the Chaldeans, We don't know their names, but they denounce Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the three friends. They denounce them before the king. Now, notice how they come before the king. They're fawning. Oh, king, live forever. Didn't you do this decree? And didn't didn't you say this? And didn't you say that? 
uh, as, they, as they fawn over the king, what they're doing is they're, they're setting him up to be especially angry at the three friends. Now, I think what's interesting is the king, and we saw this last week, he doesn't, he doesn't quite trust these Chaldeans still. I think if he did, he would have just had the three executed right away. But he doesn't, does he? It's interesting. He, he calls them in, and he questions them, and he actually gives them a way out rather than just immediately putting them to death, which is what the decree had said. It's profoundly transactional. Nebuchadnezzar says to the three, give me what I want, and I'll spare your life. But notice his pride. What God can rescue you from my power? I'm struck by the jealousy, the malicious jealousy of the Chaldeans who denounce Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They do not serve your gods. They do not worship the gold statue you've set up, verse 12. I can't help but wonder if they too didn't recognize the ridiculousness of the situation. I I can't help but wonder if they didn't feel the humiliation of having to bow down to a phallic image of the king. These are grown men. These are men who have advanced high in their careers. But if that's what it takes to get ahead, well, so be it. I'll swallow my pride and do what the king says. It would seem that all the other Judean exiles did the same. We're not told that it was any but these three out there in the province of Babylon. We're not surprised by that, by the rest of the Judean exiles. We saw them in chapter 1, and they had already made plenty of compromises to get along, to go along, to get ahead. But not these three. These three didn't make those compromises, and yet look at their success. It's galling. Christian, the world is not offended at you when you go along with the world. It is offended when you don't. This is what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 4, that, that, that the world is offended when we don't go along with them. Kids, maybe you've experienced this. You've been at school and your friends are saying things about another kid. And when you don't join in, you become the object of their ire. Maybe you've experienced this at work, when everybody is going along with something that everybody knows isn't quite right, but it's what's wanted. And when you don't, you're the problem. Have you ever wondered why? You know, there's, there's people that are offended at you because you're not going along with them. They also have a conscience. And Scripture tells us that their conscience is speaking to them. 
Could it be that they're offended at you because your refusal to go along is reminding them of the price they've paid already to go along and get along and get ahead? The price of their integrity, the price of their honesty, maybe even the price of their humanity, and they don't like being reminded of that price. Jesus warned us, if the world hates you, understand it hated me first. John 15, verse 18. Why did they hate Jesus? They hated him because they didn't like what they saw in the mirror that he held up to them. So remember that. As the world opposes you, hates you, excludes you because you're not going along. Now, the the three friends, their reply is bracing. They do not fawn over the king like the Chaldeans. They don't even use the title. They address him as Nebuchadnezzar, reminding him that he is but a man like them. And they decline to answer his last question. Instead, what do they say? They say, if the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But even if he doesn't save them, verse 18, we will not serve your gods or worship the statue you've set up. It is an extraordinary display of resolute faith and faithfulness in the face of the very threat of death itself. And if you grew up in church, you know, what what you probably should expect to hear me do now is give you a stirring call to a similar faith and faithfulness. Christian, you should be like those three friends. It would be stirring. I think I could do it pretty well. You would be moved. And I think it would be to miss the point of this text. Oh, we'll talk about that in a minute. But, but that doesn't make any sense until we first understand that in terms of like, who am I going to relate to in this text? I have way more in common with Nebuchadnezzar than I do with those three friends. And so do you. Repeatedly in our lives, we have buckled under pressure. We've worshipped the idols of our own making. We, we have hoped that if we, if we give our idol what it asks for, it will give us what we want in return, deeply transactional. And as we've already talked about, that's bad news for us. That's the very essence of what it means to be in rebellion against God. But, but friends, there's, there's good news. There's good news in this passage. Those three friends aren't pointing to us. Those three friends are pointing to Jesus. Jesus Christ was faithful with a resolute faith in his Father at exactly the point that we are not. Tempted by Satan at the beginning of his ministry, promised the kingdoms of this world, if you'll just bow down and worship me. Jesus refuses. 
And he says, worship the Lord our God and serve him only in Matthew chapter 4. But but it wasn't just a one-off temptation that Jesus had to face and refuse. No, he did it again and again and again up until the very bitter end. On the eve of his death, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He he is praying to his father. He's he's asking, "Is, is there another way? But not as I will, but as you will. Matthew chapter 26. Jesus was faithful when we are not. And that is good news. Because Jesus was faithful on our behalf. Jesus is worthy of our worship. Now, I'm going to unpack that a little bit more in a minute. But let me just pause and say, as those three friends point to Jesus long before they ever give us an example, they do teach us something about the nature of genuine faith. Faith, biblical faith, Christian faith believes not because of what it can get out of God, but because of who God is. These three friends, they know that God alone exists, and so God alone is worthy of their worship. Whether or not He rescues them from the furnace, they know that God has declared His love for them in the covenant with Israel, and so He alone is worthy of their allegiance. If God is God then he is worthy of our lives regardless of how he disposes of our lives. This is is what the word worship actually means. Worship is kind of a made-up English word that comes from an older English word that was literally worth-ship. Someone is worthy of our honor of our respect, of our love, of our loyalty and allegiance. And so we give them worship. It became worship. Friends, this is God. He is worthy of our lives because of who He is, not because of how He disposes of our lives. Christian. Is your faith in God, is your worship of God rooted in His character? Is it rooted in His holiness, in His worthiness? Or is it mainly rooted in His gifts, the the, the good things that He's given you in this life? Is, Is your love for God rooted in His loveliness? a loveliness that has been displayed most of all in the person of Jesus Christ? Or is your love for the Lord mainly based on what He's done for you lately? God is worthy. He's worthy of our love. He is worthy of our faith because He is the God who has revealed Himself in and through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. 
And he needs no other reason for our worship. We, we should need no other reason to give him our worship, our love, our all. That brings us third to the rescuing God. Because at the end of the day, as much as you've heard this chapter be a chapter all about Daniel's free th- three friends and their amazing faith. This is actually not a chapter about them. It's not a chapter about us. This is a chapter about God and who he's revealed himself to be. We'll pick it up in verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with rage and the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He gave orders to heat the furnace seven times more than was customary and he commanded some of his best soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the furnace of blazing fire. So these men in their trousers, robes, head coverings, and other clothes were tied up and thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. Since the king's command was so urgent and the furnace extremely hot, the raging flames killed those men who carried Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego up. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the furnace of blazing fire. Then King Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in alarm. He said to his advisors, didn't we throw three men bound into the fire? Yes, of course, your majesty, they replied to the king. He exclaimed, look. I see four men, not tied, walking around in the fire unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the door of the furnace of blazing fire and called, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you servants of the Most High God, come out. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. Nebuchadnezzar orders the furnace heated as hot as it can get. That's the whole point of seven times hotter than normal, meaning just turn it all the way up to high. Get it as hot as you possibly can. He gets his strongest soldiers to tie these three men up in their very flammable clothing and has them thrown into the furnace. The fire is so hot that the executioners are executed. Don't miss that irony. We'll talk about it again in a few chapters. And then the three tumble into the fire. If if the stirring statement of the three friends was kind of the first climax of chapter 3, this is without doubt the dramatic climax. This is, this is the money shot, the movie moment in this chapter as they fall into the, the fire. And, and Nebuchadnezzar's mocking question just kind of hangs there in the air. Who is the God who can save you from my power? Who indeed? All of a sudden, the scene shifts the narrative slows down. We're no longer staring at the furnace. Instead, as readers, we're staring at Nebuchadnezzar, who's staring at the furnace, and his advisors, who are staring at Nebuchadnezzar. We see the look on his face as it changes in confusion. We see Nebuchadnezzar jump up as he stares at the furnace, and they're staring at 
him. The, the, the king has a look of disbelief on his face. We, we hear his questions as he's trying to make sense of what he's seeing, but we're not yet seeing. Weren't there three men that we threw in? Weren't, weren't they bound? Well, yes, of course, say the advisors. See, they're not looking at the furnace. They're looking at Nebuchadnezzar, which is where you're supposed to look if you're a functionary of an ancient Near Eastern monarch who can cut your head off in a moment. So they're always staring at him. Oh, yes, of course. All of a sudden, Nebuchadnezzar says, then why are there four men walking around in there? Why are they not tied up? And why does one of them look like a son of the gods. At that question, you, you can almost see the advisors turning their gaze from Nebuchadnezzar to the furnace as Nebuchadnezzar connects the dots. Their God is the God who can rescue them from his power. As Nebuchadnezzar is going to say just a few verses later, God clearly sent his angel so that they would walk unharmed in the furnace of Nebuchadnezzar's wrath. When they come out, there won't even be the smell of smoke on them. And so he calls out, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you servants of the Most High God, come out. Friends, there is no better picture of the gospel just as those three friends pointed to Jesus in his faithfulness, so they point forward to him as the one who faced not just a king's wrath, but the fiery furnace of God's holy wrath. When Jesus said, as I mentioned earlier, not my will, but your will be done, he was referring to his death on the cross because he knew what that death would entail. On the cross, Jesus not only felt the nails ordered by a Roman governor, he not only received the mocking and ridicule of the very people he'd come to save, he, he not only experienced the, the desertion by all of his friends. No, Jesus experienced all of that at the hand of his own father. On the cross, Jesus Christ endured the hell that is God's just wrath for sin. On, on the cross, Jesus endured the, the derision that our sin deserves, coming from the Father himself. On, on the cross, Jesus experienced the desolation of being forsaken by his Father. And all of this, not because of his sin, but because of ours. God sent his angel to walk in the furnace with those three men, but God sent his son to walk in the furnace of his wrath by himself in our place. Jesus suffered the death that God's judgment for our sin demands. But just as Nebuchadnezzar caused those three men to come out, 
So in the end, death could not hold Jesus. The fire of God's wrath did not finally harm Jesus. He was buried, but three days later, he got up from the dead because he had no sin and he had exhausted God's judgment. Jesus came out of the tomb. He came out of the furnace of God's judgment. And friends, he did it for us. And he did it while we were still sinners. He didn't do it because we'd done something for him. He didn't do that because he could look way in advance and see your faith and say, well, I guess I got to pay his faith back by dying for him. No. No, there's nothing transactional about this. This is pure gift, pure grace. And friends, this is who God is. This is his character. This is his love. This is his loveliness. He is not only worthy of our faith as the God who exists and there is no other God, but he's worthy of our faith as the God who reconciled justice and love through the cross in the person of his son for people who didn't deserve it. And if you're not a Christian, this is what we're calling you to. We're we're, we're not calling you to religion. We're We're not calling you to philosophy. We're not calling you to do something great for God. We're calling you to recognize that this is who God is. He's revealed it in the person of Jesus Christ. Nebuchadnezzar took out his wrath on those three friends. God, the God we're asking you to trust, poured out his wrath on his son. He poured out his wrath on himself for you. Why would he do this? Why would he do this for us? Why would he do this for these three men? I think the answer to that question leads us finally to a repentant confession. Look at verse 27. When the satraps, prefects, governors, and the king's advisors gathered round, they saw that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men. Not a hair of their heads was singed. Their robes were unaffected, and there was no smell of fire on them. Nebuchadnezzar exclaimed, Praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel and rescued his servants who trusted in him. They violated the king's command and risked their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I issue a decree that anyone of any people, nation, or language who says anything offensive against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be torn limb from limb and his house made a garbage dump. For there is no other God who is able to deliver like this. Then the king rewarded Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Did did God rescue those three men because of their faith? Did did their faith earn or obligate the rescue? No. We've already covered that. They, They themselves made that point earlier. God was under no obligation to rescue anybody. Instead, he rescued them in order to vindicate their confession of God, 
of who he is and his great worthiness. He, he rescued them so that by vindicating their confession, he might elicit Nebuchadnezzar's confession, a repentant confession. Nebuchadnezzar answers his own question. Their God is the only God who is able to rescue like this. Their faith is vindicated, but more to the point, God is vindicated. And the king's repentance is clear. The passage begins and ends with a decree, but how different those decrees from those who refuse to worship my statue will be thrown into the furnace to those who blaspheme Israel's God will be executed. Friend, all along, I've suggested that the person that we should identify with in this chapter is Nebuchadnezzar. And I would invite you to, to identify with him right here. It, if you're not a Christian, I understand that if Jesus is still in the grave, then you can safely ignore Christianity. You can safely ignore everything I've just said. But Jesus is not in the grave. He came out of the tomb. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the vindication of his message. It's the vindication of his claim to be the Son of God, the Savior of the world, your Savior, if you will but repent and put your faith in him. This is really the only reasonable response to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, to repent of setting yourself up as God. And instead, put your faith in this one, Jesus, God in the flesh, who has shown himself to be faithful. I'd love to talk to you more about that. You're, you're going to hear two people in just a moment give their own testimony of, of how they came to that, that same faith. But by turning away from their sins and turning to God instead, we'd love to talk to you about how you could do the same. Let me just end by reminding you, if you're a Christian, that what, that what happened here to these three friends is, is not unusual. It, oh, sh sure, the, the miraculous stuff is unusual. I get that. <laughs> But experiencing trials, because we're followers of, of Jesus, that's not unusual. Je Jesus described what it meant to follow him. It meant picking up your cross and following him. He, he makes it clear from the beginning, to follow me is to follow me into trials. It's to follow me into suffering. Christian, God is not obligated to rescue you from those trials. When he takes you through them, he's not letting down his side of the bargain. 
as if our faith somehow bought his services. When he does rescue us from trials, and praise God he does again and again, remember that, it, that in doing that, he, it, it's not to make much of you and, and your faith. No, it's to vindicate himself and your faith in him. It's to vindicate his name, his character, his love. So, Christian, Jesus was faithful for you on your behalf. He now gives you, through his Spirit, the faithfulness that you need. So, so that whether he rescues you from the next trial or not, your faith is a compelling witness to a watching world. Because our faith is finally compelling precisely because it is not contingent on our circumstances. There's nothing at all transactional about our relationship with God. Nothing. He's already rescued you. Our confession, come what may, is that He is worthy of our lives, our love, our all. And that is our message to a watching world. Would you pray with me? Lord God, you alone are worthy of our lives. You alone are worthy of our worship. You have nothing left to prove. You have demonstrated who you are in and through the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray for a faith that is captured by your worthiness, captured by your loveliness, your beauty, your holiness, your faithfulness. We pray that you would give us that faith for everything that we have, that we have received from you. And we ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.